Welcome everybody, you're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88, right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are, positively different radio, in the morning you are with Lyle and Kate. Kate, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you. Now you were here, what, two, three weeks ago with Minnie, you joined us for the show, but now you're going to do the show... Well, not by yourself, but without Minnie. <laughs> yes, yes. So we're super excited about this <laughs> and super thankful that you are able to join us here on Faith FM and looking forward to an amazing show this morning. Kate, what are you thankful for this morning? I'm thankful for my husband. I woke up this morning and he had bought me a new lunch bag and had it set up on the bench with some things ready for me. And then I get in my car this morning and there's a little love note for me. And I just... <laughs> so oh, no. oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no, oh no, your husband is, your husband is officially making all, all of us men look bad this morning. I'm not sure that I like your husband this morning. I know, and this is You can be free. thankful for your husband. I'm not, because while your, while your husband is earning brownie points, I'm losing them. <laughs> this is year three of marriage. So we are. That's fairly, not a bad effort after yes, year three. Yes. He actually got better after I married him. Really? Yes. I, in my experience in the past, I have noticed that as soon as um, people get married, they're like, ah, now I can relax. <laughs> I don't have to try and impress. Yeah, got the ring on the finger. Don't need to worry about anything anymore. Yeah, but he actually got better. He did more housework and was more lovely. I'm like, wow. Okay. Well, praise God. And that's how it is actually supposed to be. That's it how is. it's supposed to work. It is. Uh, that's pretty special. I'm, I'm just, yeah. Feeling very um, threatened here this morning. Oh, what are you grateful for, Lyle? Well, let me think. What am I grateful for? I'm grateful that I have a big pile of firewood stacked up in my backyard, and my wife stacked that pile of firewood. Ooh, so, that's impressive. Now she's making all late. Oh. Ladies look bad. Ladies yeah. look bad. Yes. <laughs> You're listening to the Breakfast Joe podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. All right, tell us some positively different news this morning, Kate. Okay, the Medical Board of California are investigating a plastic surgeon who took part in a hearing for his traffic offence while in an operating room and wearing surgical scrubs. You know, I heard about this (laughs) and I was like, what is going on here? Well, the medical machinery could be heard during the Zoom conference with the procedure taking place just out of view. So, so wait, 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 wait. Was he actually cutting up a human being while he's <laughs> testifying in court? Is that, was that what's going on here? Well, well, his claim was that there was another surgeon present, so it wasn't too dangerous. Uh, but the judge decided to still postpone the hearing because he didn't feel it was appropriate to conduct a trial under these circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> he finished off saying, uh, we want to keep people healthy. We want to keep them alive. That's important. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed it is. And hey, the other guy was there i'm sure that there was uh, no danger to the patient but um yeah i think i think sometimes you know our zoom world is a very different world isn't it it is a very different world and we seem to be doing kind of everything by zoom yes have yes. you have you ever been tempted to attend a meeting on zoom while driving I think i have done that it's, be- it's become <laughs> a bit of a thing and it's probably not the god uh, uh, should I put this on radio? Yeah, I probably, well, I already kind of have. Um, yeah, I've done this as well. <laughs> <laughs> but we haven't so, looked at the video. No, course. no, not look at the video, but you can uh, you can put your everything, turn the video off, turn it to mute, 
and listen to everything that is being said, which is no different from listening to the radio. Of course. And be there for the meeting. Uh, that's my justification for yes. it. It's just like listening to the radio, guys. Yes. Okay, it's not a very good idea, though. <laughs> okay, right, next in South Australia, a, name, a lady named Nadia Tugwell decided to get out of her car to investigate what had caused a five-car pileup. When she came closer, she discovered it was, in fact, a koala trying to cross a six-lane freeway. Apparently, a concrete highway divider had blocked the koala's crossing, so what was the little koala supposed to do but to cross the six lanes of traffic? Which brings me to a joke, Lyle. Mm. Why did the koala cross the road? Oh, um, uh, I've got nothing. (laughs) Well, any answer that you come up with uh, would have gotten you marks, but I truly think that in this case it was to get to the other side. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> no, no, it is too early in the morning. It is way too early in the morning. A six-car pile-up, though. Yes, yes. That's that's pretty full on. Did somebody just, like, try and stop to, like, oh, let's help this koala, and I then everybody so. just ran up the back of I, them? Yes, I think that's what happened. So Nadia, with her coat in hand, teamed up with a stranger to capture the koala. She had learned from uh, past experience to calm koalas by covering their eyes. That's, that actually works with most animals, you know. Okay. You throw something over their eyes and they're like, ah, oh, we don't know what to do, and they just stop struggling. Right. Because they don't have anything. They can't see what they need to be hitting, biting, scratching, or otherwise. Ah, uh, is that why snakes are kept in bags before show and tell? Ah, uh, I always thought snakes were kept in bags before show and tell so that they didn't bite them. <laughs> I guess that's a, a that's a valid comment. Well, it's probably it's probably also um, it's probably also that it's a really comfortable place for a snake. You know, it's like I think it would be feel super comfortable snuggled down in a bag. Uh, well, that's true. I, you know, I wouldn't. It'd be like a hammock for us. Okay. You know, you you lay in a hammock and a hammock's nice. I like lying in a hammock. Yes. All good. Well, Nadia said that the koala was absolutely not damaged in any way. It was very active but calm. Um, and she drove it to a petrol station. She put it in the boot of her SUV and it climbed while she was driving. It climbed towards the front. So as soon as she got to the petrol station, she jumped out and said, you know what? You can have that place. I'll, I'll be right out here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, the uh, leather trimmings in her luxury vehicle will never be the same. But uh, Nadia says the happy ending was very well worth the damage. And the koala was later res- released in a forest well away from the freeway. Okay, so, because I was, it sounded like she was going to let the thing go at the petrol station. I'm thinking, okay, what's the link here between oh, petrol stations sorry, and yes. koalas? No, and she called the wild, wildlife rescuers. Ah, uh, okay. And they came to that particular location. Yes, all yes. right, all right, all right. We got it. We yes. Got it. Okay, now in Florida, a boy's attempt to hide in a roadside rubbish bin almost turned tragic when it was picked up by a garbage truck. It was nearly sent into, the, well, he was nearly sent into the choppers as the blades turned on. So, seven-year-old Elias Quisida said he was thinking that this might be the end for me. He said, I almost thought that I was going to be a mashed potato. But the sharp-eyed driver named Waldo Fidel spotted the boy in the truck's surveillance camera and rushed to turn, to turn the choppers off just in time. Wow. <laughs> I, I mean, hey, stop and think about this for a moment. Uh, and, and maybe there's a maybe there's a Garbo out there that can give us a call this morning. Just let us know how this works. I assume that you've got a camera that sees what is going into 
the rubbish truck so that you make sure that you don't miss. Yeah. Because so, then you'd have a horrible mess to clean up on the side yes. of the road, which wouldn't be fun. And maybe he heard the, the scream and saw a little boy, a seven-year-old, just... Well, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just sort of thinking to myself, you know, you pick up how many rubbish bins in a day... Too many. Do you look at every single one as it goes in? Perhaps this was a God moment. Perhaps it was a God moment, or perhaps this is just the professionalism of our garbos. Maybe that's exactly what they do, is check out every single load of rubbish they dump in the back. I would imagine, I kind of look at it and think, well, it just looks automated, you know, it picks up the bin and it always seems to dump it in exactly the right spot. Mm. Um, so couldn't you just go zonk, zonk, zonk as you drive down the road and not even look at it, but somebody yeah. was... Looking. Yeah, praise God. God. Praise God that uh, this young lad is still alive and well. Exactly. Yes. He had a minor cut, but um, the only, the worst thing that's happened is that he doesn't like trash cans anymore, as they call them in Florida. Um, But he did make an exception saying, unless it's like a tiny trash can that's inside the house, then it might be fine. Yeah, you might not fit (laughs) in it as well. But even still, I mean, you kind of look at, um, you know, your garbage can or trash can, depending on your... uh, your frame of reference there, and, well, there's a whole bunch of things that go in there that are not really that nice. Absolutely. I look in my wheelie bin, I would not want to climb in there. And the smell. The exact the smell and the things that will get stuck all over you. Yes. Um, yeah, that'd be, that'd be a bit of a challenge. But anyway, um, praise God for this particular miracle. We need to thank God for every small miracle that comes along and that this kid is still alive. We do. Yes. Mm. One last very quick one. When writing your will, who do you leave your millions to when you're not married, don't have children, and your best friend is an eight-year-old border collie named Lulu? You guessed it. For Bill Doris from Nashville, it was a no-brainer. As he set his dog Lulu up with a trust fund for, wait for it, $5 million. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering how what a dog's going to do with $5 million. But anyway, <laughs> there you go. All right, there's our positively different news stories for this morning. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Fantastic. Well, over the weekend, of course, uh, Pope Francis was spending time in Iraq. And uh, in the lead up to this whole visit, one of the things that was I was kind of, you know, curious to look into was, you know, they were promoting as the first time a Pope has ever been to Iraq. Okay. Now, the world is a big place, and uh, you look at the Middle East, it is very close to Italy, Mm -hmm. to Rome. Uh, The popes have not always lived in Italy. Uh, For quite a long time, of course, the the Papal Palace was in France. And so they have travelled to many, many different countries. Uh, Why has there never been a pope that has ever travelled to Iraq? That is a very good question. You would think, you know, it's just it's, it's just not that far away. And a lot of people would say, well, you know, it's an Islamic country. Well, yes, majority Islam, but a very strong and vibrant Christian community in Iraq right down through the centuries. Of course, you know, you've got the rise of Islam in your 5th, 6th, 7th centuries, which is when, when it's really starting to take over that part of the world. And so that gives a lot of opportunity for... Um, the Bishop of Rome to travel over to to Iraq, um, you know, and, and and even after that, you would say, well, there's still a strong Christian presence there. How come the Pope has never ever actually been to Iraq? Mm. And so I thought I might just share a little bit of history that uh, is relevant to this. Um, 
what a lot of people are unfamiliar with is that the church in Iraq, the Christian church in Iraq, you know, very strong, vibrant Christian church, was never actually connected to the church in Rome. There was never a point in history where that church was connected to the church in Rome, which makes this visit even more interesting again. Because now there's this assumed connection to the church in Rome. And I kind of stop and ask myself the question, okay, how did that all come about? Okay, so here's what you've got. You had some major centers of Christianity uh, early on in the history of Christianity. And your major centers were Rome, Constantinople, Carthage, um, Antioch. And the church in Antioch was a, a very uh, conservative church. It was a Bible-believing church. It was a salvation-by-grace-believing church. What's significant for us, you and I, as Seventh-day Adventists, mm-hmm. as a Seventh-day Adventist uh, show, if you're wondering, um, is, is that it was a Sabbath-keeping church. It was a church that worshipped on uh, the seventh day of the week. And so, you know, it was, it was a missionary church. It was a church that was involved in translating the Bible into other languages. And this was, you know, taking place as early as 150 A.D., you know, you, you were having the Syriac translation, you were having the Celtic and Ethiopic translations, and they were coming out of the big missionary centers that you had at Antioch and Edessa, uh, places like this, that were sending missionaries out to the world. And, of course, the church in the east was particularly sending missionaries further east. So they had a lot of connections with Christianity in places like India and China, across into Japan, down into Indonesia, uh, these kind, kinds of localities. Uh, right through the spice route, there was a lo- very strong Christianity that developed right through the spice route. And then when you come down to the time of the Emperor Justinian, and this is interesting because you've got the power of various bishops that begins to grow during this time. And in the time of Justinian, you've got this debate. So the Emperor Justinian, he's, uh, he's, he's ruling from Constantinople, he's the Roman Emperor, but there's a debate amongst the bishops as to who is the preeminent bishop. And they're all fighting with each other. Of course, the Bishop of Constantinople says, I'm the preeminent bishop because this is where the emperor is. The Bishop of Rome was saying, I'm the preeminent bishop because it's the Roman Empire. Um, and then, of course, you had places like Antioch and Carthage that were like, well, you know, Antioch is like, we've got the original religion and you guys have corrupted. And there was all this debate that was taking place. Mm. And so Justinian solved it, interestingly, by choosing the Bishop of Rome which is why the Bishop of Rome has always been the preeminent bishop ever since. Hmm. However, previous to this, that took place, the decree was made in the year 533. But previous to this, if you go back to the year 474, sorry, 424, you have the church in the east that actually broke away. And their reasoning was, you guys don't follow the Bible anymore, you're just following traditions. Mm. And so we're going to break away and we're going to form our own church. It's called the Church of the East. And we're going to be a Bible-believing church. Now, what happened in the East was that you also had the rise of Islam several hundred years after that which pretty much took over the Middle East. And so the Church of the East never became the national religion that you had in the West. Uh, it particularly grew strong in the Sasanian Empire. The Sasanian Empire, you know, covered all of the Middle East. It was particularly centered in Iran, but it covered, you know, all of Iraq, all of those kind of places, right through to Afghanistan, um, the borders with Pakistan, etc. And Christianity grew very strong there, 
but it never became the national religion. The first national religion that you had in the East, of course, was Islam, and so Christianity has always been sort of the second religion in that part of the world. And this is why the popes never went there. There was never any reason to go there. Okay. They had no church members there. <laughs> there was no one that belonged. And then, of course, you had the church in Constantinople uh, during the Great Schism when they split away and formed the Orthodox Church. And so now that even further isolated the Western Church from what was happening in the East. And so, yeah, the Pope went there for the first time. Um, it's interesting to see these connections now being built between the Eastern Churches by the way, the uh, church in Armenia, uh, which was a part of the Church of the East, was a Sabbath-keeping church up until uh, around about 100 years ago, right the way through from the time of the Apostles, unbroken chain of Sabbath-keeping. Nice. Which uh, is you know some fascinating piece of history. So I thought this would be an interesting time to talk about a little bit of history of what took place and to also look at the fact that we do have this coming together right now of the Church of the East, the Orthodox churches, uh, the Anglican churches, uh, the Lutheran churches, the Church of Rome. Uh, you've got many of these churches. You've got bridges being built right across all of these old divides and the Christian community generally saying, well, you know, we need to not worry about the things that divide us. We just need to be united together, particularly because Christians are feeling under pressure from secularism in our world today. And so there's this push for unity. And uh, there's a lot of things about that push for unity that are very positive. You know, we used to have religious wars. Mm. That was something that, that's a dark blot on the history of Christianity. It's something that should never have taken place. And uh, the coming together like this is, is one of those things where you could say, well, this could get rid of religious wars. On the other hand, the Bible talks about religious unity at the end of time. Bible says the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet all come together. Now, dragon, beast, and false prophet are all religious in nature. Mm -hmm. And they gather together against God. So there is an ecumenical movement that takes place just before Jesus comes back. It's never going to be seen as a bad movement. The devil's not that silly. He's not going to come down and like, let's start something evil because <laughs> everybody's going to follow it. No. He's going to say, this is good. This is wonderful. We all need to be doing this. Yeah. And then there is, you know, an iron fist inside the velvet glove and suddenly bang and you've got the Battle of Armageddon taking place and all those end time scenarios beginning to kick in. Interesting time in which we live. Interesting to see the Pope heading to a part of the world that he has never, ever been to before. Let's pray for peace in the Middle East. It seems to be a place that tends to avoid peace. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM, 87.6, 87.8 or 88. We have Baron Newstratton joining us on the phone this morning. Baron comes on uh, every month or so to talk about the book of Genesis. We've been working our way through it, and we are up to Genesis 17, 18, uh, thereabouts, where we come across this uh, thing that's kind of, I guess, unusual in some ways, particularly in our society today, where... God institutes the practice of circumcision. What's what's going on here, Barand? Yeah, that was instituted there at this time with, uh, with Abram being the age that he is. He was, uh, uh, what was it, uh, 99? He was uh, an old man. And, uh, of course, uh, it was to be uh, maintained uh, during his posterity. 
God revisited him and he just obviously established, uh, they reestablished again the covenant with Abram. And as a sign of the covenant, there was the, uh, the, the writ of circumcision. So he was 99 years old when the Lord approached him on this issue. Uh, having said that, Lyle, it, it may be of interest to you here is that uh, it was not uncommon as a practice in those days. And uh, early Egyptians did this as well. And there were other tribal nations that actually practiced that for uh, hygienic reasons. Right, so this was something that was, you know, not unheard of in the world, and um, no, that's right, correct. There's more to it than just hygienic reasons here with Abraham uh, when God institutes it, because you find that I guess, well, all Hebrew people from here on practice it. Oh, uh, for sure, it is definitely, definitely a covenantal sign. It was uh, uh, between, and God was very insistent on that. If you look at the fact that people were trying to be exempt from this, they would be expelled. They would not be part of the economy of the Jewish nation. Uh, Non-circumcision was not an option for a, for a descendant of Abraham. Now, what about in New Testament times? I mean, the New Testament has a lot to say about the issue of circumcision. Uh, is there a yeah. religious requirement for Christians to be circumcised today? No, there isn't. Uh, of course, we are familiar with the rate of baptism, which was... Uh, established by the Lord himself. Uh, so that is uh, for male and female. You've got to bear in mind that circumcision was strictly only for the males. Um, the cessation of the circumcision uh, was really um, in response to the probationary time of the Jews being expired. Uh, you know, we have from literal Israel, we go to spiritual Israel. There was, if you study the, the book of Daniel, and uh, uh, many of you here will be familiar with this, there was a probationary time for the Jews, which actually expired at 34 AD. And so the, the cessation of the circumcision uh, meant that they were no longer just the chosen nation. Now we have spiritual Israel, who is, uh, which is commissioned to spread the gospel around the world. And while we're talking about circumcision, uh, you mentioned that this was only a male thing, so there's nothing in the Bible that would ever indicate female circumcision? No, definitely not, no. And, you know, this that's, is a very controversial practice. subject in our world today, and I guess that... Uh, yes, yes. It, it really is a mutilation. It, it, it carries no value. Um, and uh, whatever prompts some of the practice to be upheld, it is very questionable. It, it certainly is not biblical at all. Yeah, and, and really two very, very different reasons for the practice. You know, one, uh, yeah. you know, there is, yeah. there is, you know, particularly when you're living in a, in a, yeah. in a third world environment. would be exercised at all. Yeah. Okay, so moving on from there, we have another story that sort of follows on from that where this particular practice is established. Um, and, you know, really becomes a hallmark of Jewish people from that point forward that they're circumcised on the eighth day, and that still is what takes place to this very day. Um, yeah. We move on from there, and we find that the Bible talks about God appearing to Abraham. Yeah. And Abraham actually sitting down and having a meal with God. What's What's going on here when Abraham sees God at this particular point and two people with him, does he recognize that this is 
He is in the presence of the ruler and the creator of the entire universe. Is that what is happening here? Well, it is a fascinating experience that he went through. Um, the, if, if, we read, if we read the account, particularly in the Hebrew language, uh, for the word Lord, you have two expressions. One of them is Adonai, and the other one is Yavad, which is really the covenant uh, personal name of God. And so both translations as Lord in English, so you couldn't tell from the English the difference. But as they, these uh, three men approach him in the heat of the day, so that uh, the hottest planet can ever get ever so hot down there, he is near a place called Hebron, which still is very identifiable today. And they see these three men coming to him and he, he, uh, it's a marvelous uh, way. It tells you a lot about the man, how he runs out, out to them and invites them and takes care of them and, uh, really, uh, spoils them, it almost seems. Um, because he, he gets his wife to prepare cakes and food and there's even, uh, a young calf that, uh, would not have been happy with the visitation because that became, uh, he became a meal and it's just quite incredible that he extends it uh, to that degree. But there it is. He, uh, he extends his um, hospitality in the most marvelous, marvelous way. Does he do this because he knows he's in the presence of God, or is this that Abraham's no, lifestyle? that's him. That's what you do. That is, the, that is the traditional, that was the traditional hospitality, which was sacred. Uh, the well-being of your guests, if, you, uh, if they accepted your hospitality, was was very sacred to the to the host. Baron, you've spent time living in Israel. Has this yeah. has this concept of hospitality been passed down to today? Do you find it amongst the Israeli people, the Palestinian people, the Bedouin people that are yeah. still living there today? Yeah. Well, the, the last one you just mentioned, the Bedouins certainly traditionally still have this very much, and it's quite an experience to be. Uh, invited and to have a meal which happened once or twice to me which is quite fascinating uh, and you can tell that hospitality there is still uh, you know regarded as a sacred uh, as a sacred duty there's no question about that the um, palestinians some of the palestinians particularly the village people uh, they would be more inclined to still preserve that hospitality but not to that extent Right. So, you know, we, we see some parts of the world where, um, I guess strangers are met with a high level of suspicion and standoffishness, but this is a culture yeah. that really, really does value being hospitable to people and even to strangers. Yeah. And whilst that is true and it's admirable, there is also another side to it at times that particularly in with some of the Arab uh, people that, you know, that are met throughout the Middle East, uh, sometimes it can lead to an obligation. Uh, if there's any dealings to be done between you and them, the way to do it is to uh, invoke hospitality first to the point where you become obliged, if you know what I mean. So it's uh, also a means of bargaining, and you have to be aware of that. Okay, so this, this, that's interesting because in this story, it does progress to what we would, we would think would be some kind of bargaining further on in the story where Abraham is bargaining with God. Is that what is happening here? No, not really. This is really a very genuine, 
uh, hospitality that uh, is is very expensive when you when you consider all the things that he does and how he prepares and there's a young calf that, as I said, is is being slaughtered and uh, how long it would have taken we don't know. But his wife is engaged in it and some servants obviously engaged in it. This is genuine, uh, heartfelt hospitality and it reflects the man's nature. There was no bargaining at that, but there was bargaining indeed, as you said, yes, yes. after it. Yes, I, uh, I, I think of, I think of the, I think of the effort that went into, you know, butchering a calf. That's, uh, a significant amount of time and energy that has been invested that we would yeah. not even think about today. We would think that, you know, if we cooked a meal, we've, we've done a fair bit as far as hospitality goes, but he's yeah. actually gone out and killed the beast and then butchered it and then cooked it and no doubt taken the vegetables, the herbs, whatever went with it, everything else would have come straight yeah. out of the garden that would have been nearby. And so this was, we would imagine this is it taking up half a day. Yeah, you would think so. He's at a locality called the Mamre, which is very near Hebron, which now particularly is quite dry. We don't know quite what the, uh, the, 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 the flora was at the time, but it would have been more favorable than it is today. It's quite dry today, of course, and barren, but uh, he, he spent time there. So yeah, and then the time factor. Yeah, that's hard to say. They would have been very experienced in doing and providing a meal and it would be fairly expeditious but you would have thought particularly if it involves meat it would have taken still time Mm. now at some particular point in this conversation abraham finds out who it is that he is actually entertaining when does that point come yeah that's the interesting thing to pick because as i said the word for lord uh, you know adonai and uh, the two Hebrew words Adonai and Yavah, the personal name of God, in English are not uh, distinctive to, to us, of course, because both are translated as Lord. But it is when, when the, 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 in, in verse 9, the question is put to Abram. This is a unique occurrence. Where is Sarah, your wife? Now, he hasn't met them. To him, as far as he's concerned, they are strangers. It is unbecoming of a stranger to inquire of your wife and particularly by name. That was not how you, that was not normally done. So that already is an inkling, A, that the, the, the person who asks is familiar with her name and actually poses the question. That to him would have been, uh, certainly a very clear indication. And she was in the tent, but behind, you know, obviously away from a separate compartment of the tent, because there would have been quite large tent. And then the in verse 10 nails it, because it says here, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and then the old Sariwa shall have a son. Now, if you look at the covenant relationship uh, proposition that was put in the previous chapter, uh, this was promised, and at the time had come, it was a short time as we had come for her to have a son, and now the stranger is repeating it. Well, that did it for him. Yes, and that would have been one of those instances where you wish you could be a fly on the wall just to see the reaction on his face, and one of those instances that you kind of wish that you could have participated in as well. Wouldn't it be amazing to have Jesus sitting in your living room or dining room? And at the same time, I think... I don't know what was going through Abraham's mind. It certainly would have been somewhat intimidating to be in the presence of God like that, you know, God in the form yeah. of a, a human being. 
Yeah, it would have been, you would think so. But then again, the man was very close to God. He, If you go to the previous chapter where God says, walk before me, the verb halach means uh, to walk, that means keep his commandments, and and, and uh, he, he is invited to be perfect. So he adhered to that, and Abram was uh, close to the Lord in many ways, though the Lord had not spoken to him in the previous chapter. There was, I think, a gap of about 15 years almost uh, until the Lord had spoken to him. And so here we have a presence. Uh, I mean, this is obviously unique. Um, and to him, to Abram, the fascinating aspect, of course, is an heir through Sarah. Okay, so, you know, he's he's given this promise, he's been given this promise before, but he already has an heir. He's got Ishmael. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he pleaded with God in the previous chapter, you know, uh, that, that Esau may walk before you, meaning that he would walk again, walk with God, keep the law and... The nature of Esau was very different, and God knew that. And so but that was not God's design that he should have married Hagar. And when God makes this promise, just in, ca- just in case that Abraham might be wondering, is this really God or not, God has something else to say in relationship to both Abraham and Sarah's reaction to what has just been said, the promise. Yeah, so there's a name change, and, I, and that's quite significant too. In you, all the nations of many nations, uh, Abraham, or Afram, is the father of many nations, Afraham, and that means that's probably the best translation, and uh, so, and obviously the, the blessing is really the ultimate descendant of Abraham, which is Christ himself, and uh, that's the messianic statement, really. Uh, yeah, he, he would have been very impressed with that, very, very impressed. And, of course, uh, we have the direct descendants of Abraham. I mean, Abraham's DNA, I'm sure, is spread right around the world, but we have uh, many nations in the Middle East today that all trace their lineage back to Abraham at this particular yeah, era. Yeah, you have the Ishmaelite Arabs, you have the Midianites, other Arabic tribes, through Keturah, obviously, the, the, the woman they married after the third that died. There are the Edomites. They're all descendants from uh, yeah, they're all descendants from Abraham, and still living in that uh, in that region today. Pretty well, yeah, yeah, correct, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. How does how does Sarah in particular respond to this promise of a, of a child? It's interesting, isn't it? That in the eighteenth chapter or the the previous chapter, it says then uh, the chapter seventeen that Abraham laughed at the announcement that he would uh, still have a son. Uh, that might have been a laughter for joy. The laughter of Sarah is an interesting one. I think it was obviously one of, well, you know, unbelief, if you like. Uh, and the Lord noted that. He, she would not have laughed a laugh, obviously. And she was out of sight. So it's a very fascinating um, dialogue that ensues because she laughs. And, of course, the name Isaac, which was to be given to him, Yitzhak means laughter. Um, so there it is. Uh, and then there's the conversation that uh, Sarah laughs in herself, so she's not making any noise. But the Lord, verse 13, says to Abram, why did your wife, why did Sarah laugh? And then she denied it, but then he said again, straight out, 
know you did laugh. Mm. Quite an interesting conversation. <laughs> it certainly would be. There's uh, certainly nothing that we can hide from God, and when God no. is in on the conversation, don't try and deny what was actually going on inside your heart, even though you were trying to hide it. God reads our heart. Uh, Barand, this is a fascinating story, and, of course, the promise is fulfilled. Um, Isaac is born we have a number of miracle births in the Bible. We have, you know, Mary, who is a virgin who gives birth here. You have uh, Sarah, who is, you know, a woman who is decades past the ability yeah. to be able to give birth, who does. And so, mm. you know, God is certainly um, above all of these. The story doesn't end here because it's going to continue on into the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, but we're going to have to leave that one until next month. Um, mm. But, Baron, thank you so much for joining us this morning and talking about uh, the book of Genesis and particularly the story of Abraham and Sarah. Uh, a pleasure. God bless you. We're going to be back uh, right after this song. We'll have the 8 o'clock news, and then we'll be back with Encounter with God. You're listening to Faith FM. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.